I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzone. Everyone, welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner at Multi Studio in Kansas City, and today I am joined by my friend Chuck Marone. Once again, welcome back. Good to see you. So nice to see you, Abby. We we did our weather talk before we went live, so we don't have to do that. Yeah, sorry, everyone. <laughs> but I will say <laughs> our staff is, uh, the whole team here is headed to Florida for a, a retreat. And I tried to get you at one of them in the past, and I'd like to try to get you to one of those in the future. This would have been a fun one to have you at. I know. You had mentioned this one, but then it kind of snuck up on us. Uh, it is my birthday week mm. coming up. Uh, while you guys will be on the retreat. Happy yeah. Birthday. So thank you very much. Almost out of my 20s. Very <laughs> scary. That's fantastic. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> no big deal. We'll enjoy Orlando. Um, I'm sure the weather is going to be fantastic. So coming from Minnesota, it will be fantastic. I know. <laughs> yeah. Nice relief. So the article that we are covering today is published in the Denver Post by Noel Phillips. It is entitled, Will Insurance Companies Opt to Leave Colorado? So this is basically about the increasing risk of wildfires and how they're driving insurance carriers out of certain areas in Colorado, raising their premiums, and in some cases not choosing not to cover them at all. Just in the past few years, many heavily forested areas of the state have been hit especially hard by wildfires. One example called the Marshall Fire has caused $2 billion in damages and has been the most expensive wildfire in the state's history. Um, And quite often, homeowners are actually discovering that they are underinsured when these things happen, which means that they have insurance policies that don't actually provide enough money to rebuild their homes once a fire occurs. In mountain communities like Aspen, Vail, Telluride, Steamboat Springs, and other areas like that, insurance companies are starting to pull out altogether. This, of course, leaves many property owners kind of blindsided, holding the bag as they learn that their previous policy has been dropped or they bought a house uh, in the mountains and are learning that they can't get insurance at all. So the state is thinking of stepping in. Their insurance chief is suggesting a publicly funded insurance option be established. This would also be known as the insurance of last resort plan uh, for those who are denied coverage by private insurance companies. This is something that would be really challenging to develop. There hasn't been a state that has established one of these in a very long time, although a lot of states have it, Florida, California, for example. Um, It's going to be really challenging politically, technically. As far as the article is concerned, really none of the different publicly funded insurance options really operate in a perfect way. And so there's going to be a lot of challenges actually putting this together, meaning that there's not going to be an immediate relief to property owners uh, anytime soon. 
One clarification on the article's title, uh, which seems to insinuate that companies are leaving Colorado, the state altogether, which I thought was kind of clickbaity because I did not get an indication from the article that they're actually pulling out of the entire state, but just dropping certain areas that are too risky to insure. There's there's nobody living in an apartment in Denver that's going to <laughs> right? There's nobody who owns a home in like, you know. Like Denver. Yeah, Denver who's going to lose their insurance. <laughs> I hope not. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To me, this seems more like the, the subdivision that they used as an example, I actually looked it up. It's, you know, north of Boulder, not in city limits, million dollar plus houses tucked into uh, the mountainside. So uh, I'm assuming that these are the types of places that we're going to start to see more and more issues because of the increasing risk of wildfires. On one hand, I, I kind of feel bad for the homeowners because it's not like they're really thinking about this. I, I can understand the frustration of suddenly not being able to be insured. And I, I would think that, you know, as somebody purchasing a property um, in the mountains, you probably assume that, you know, if, if they built a house here, it must be insurable. It must be okay. It must be, uh, you know, sustainable or whatever. And people aren't really going to be thinking about it so much. So I don't, I do kind of feel for the property owners that suddenly either can't sell their home or they can't insure their home and they're kind of stuck. But at the same time, you know, insurance companies are not able to insure these areas because we probably shouldn't be building multi-million dollar houses uh, in areas that are prone to fires, prone to hurricanes, prone to uh, drought and yeah. not being able to get water mm -hmm. or all these other things that we so often talk about where there's this mismatch between the level of investment and the risk associated with the place that we're building in. If we had no insurance, right? And if there, if insurance didn't even exist, we wouldn't be building anything in these places because it wouldn't make logical sense to invest time and money and resources in places where we could just lose the whole investment. Um, so, in a way, you know, insurance on its own, even private private insurance, not just public insurance, kind of skews our level of risk, right? It detaches us from the realities of what could happen. Well, I feel like there's so many places to go with this, but let, let's just go with that one first, which, you know, is the moral hazard kind of argument. To me, the idea that state officials in Colorado are talking about creating an insurer of last resort to basically subsidize insurance for people who choose, and, and I was going to say affluent people because that is what it tends to be, affluent people who choose to live up in the mountains in the woods where it burns down and is in danger of burning down. The idea that that should be an option on the table has zero credibility when this, we're continuing to build homes there. So like if you want, if, if I'm, I'm not from Colorado, I do get upset because I, I do think that, you know, Minnesotans, people from Missouri, what do you call yourself? Missourians? 
Missourians. Missourians. That that is a mouthful. Um, <laughs> you know, our yeah. insurance premiums tend to subsidize those places as well. When when yeah. that becomes untenable, yeah. then the insurance companies go and say, "We're not going to leave, but we're going to charge you like a ridiculous." I mean, there was in this article there were places that had 10x increases in their insurance premiums, and yeah, that that's that's what happens when you are very high risk. To me, this this whole conversation about starting a public insurer of last resort, almost like it's, you know, these places got cancer of no no fault of their own, and now where public is walking away from them. That's not at all what this is. If we're going to, if, if I'm from Colorado and we're going to do this, then stop building these places. Like, why are we building more of these? Why? Why is there this huge like backlog of homes coming online in these dangerous places? Like, why is that a thing? I have a hard time getting my mind wrapped around uh, the the. Well, I, I do and I don't. It's very obvious that if you built a house or you bought a house in one of these areas, you would want that house protected by insurance. And if you can't afford that insurance, it's you know, if the state would step in and do that, that would be really, very nice. Like I, I get like that individual motivation. From a public policy standpoint, I don't know why we as a state, we as the public, we as whatever taxpayers would say it's in our interest to A, subsidize the insurance of people who choose this lifestyle, while we B, continue to build more and more homes here and C, continue to subsidize at a, at a massive, massive scale, the infrastructure that makes living in these tenuous places possible. I've driven through a lot of these cities. I've been to these places. Um, the public infrastructure that is looked at as statewide or infrastructure of national importance, the interstates, all that, is so ridiculously expensive to build on a per foot basis. It's 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 bizarre. And the fact that it is utilized really, you know, as playgrounds for rich and wealthy people, it's not something I begrudge them, but I do begrudge them the subsidy side of this. If if you want to if you want a big house on the top of a mountain in the middle of a forest fire area, okay. Like I'm not gonna say you know, the, the, my ethic is not to say you can't do that, but my ethic is to say, yeah. I'm not going to pay for the road to get pay there. I'm not going to pay for the, your yeah. insurance premium. I'm not going to pay for the fire department to come and rescue you. I'm not going to pay for, uh, you know, a helicopter to get you out. M maybe I, I will have a helicopter come get you out. Like I'm fine with that, but you're going to pay back the public for that expense. It, it, it's one of those things where, it would be as if mountain climbers or, you know, people who did like really seriously, people who jump out of airplanes, right? Like, I don't think that's a crazy thing to do. I get why people want to do it, but it is a high risk activity. Climbing a mountain is fun, but it's a high risk activity. If you want to do these things, I don't think there should be like a public fund to subsidize you on this high risk activity. If you choose a high risk lifestyle, for where you build your home, why is there this public subsidy to it? Now, that feels heartless to an extent, but I don't know. You know, you, you raise the moral hazard issue. There are just so many distortions that 
are covering up what the true cost of that pattern of development is and what the insurance companies are doing by, you know, starting to either, you know, raise their premiums or back out completely is daylighting a component of what that true cost actually is. I agree with you that there there's this element where you want those costs to be daylighted because it is a signal for I guess what the real market is, right? I mean, if the private insurance companies are saying this is what it costs, then then this is probably what it costs. And so when you introduce a a public insurance option into that equation, it may start to skew those things and, you know, make it seem like it's not a risky behavior um that i think on the on the flip side of that or you know just thinking about you know if you want to live like that you should pay for it i i agree with that to an extent but also when you drive around kind of these mountainous areas in colorado not every area is the Vale or, you know, the Breckenridge and these like really wealthy tourist towns. There are these like little pockets of, you know, really modest small towns that have kind of been left behind and that nobody travels to. <laughs> People, you know, maybe only stop there to get gas or something. So I do kind of wonder, you know, what do you do to those places where, you know, they weren't they weren't dealing with wildfires 20, 40, 60 years ago, and now they're in this risky area. And it's not like they, you know, chose to be in a risky area. They just happen to now be faced with this new risk that's been introduced. So, you know, maybe there is a place for public insurance if if it's combined with like a moratorium on building any more or if there's some kind of stipulation for like how it's actually applied and used so that it's not just, um, you know, essentially allowing people to continue business as, as usual and continue what is a high risk behavior and then expect really the rest of the country or the rest of the state to be subsidizing that and taking on that risk, which would be totally unfair. So you are, as as usual, a kinder and more compassionate person than I am. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's think about this in terms of Florida and hurricanes, right? Because we've just gone through a couple of, of really destructive hurricanes in Florida. You could say, well, you built on a hurricane path, you built on a high hurricane area, and you know you knew that this was a possibility when you built there, and you didn't exactly build like a a small cabin that can blow down and be rebuilt and doesn't have a lot. You you built a multi-million dollar complex or mansion or you know a huge home and now you want the public, you know, 90% plus are going to be far poorer than you to to subsidize your insurance because it's unaffordable. In that sense, if you're in Florida, you're kind of taking the roulette wheel of like nature's wrath. Because statistically, every place on the Florida coast is going to get struck with a hurricane at some point in the next X number of years. I don't know what that is, but like, you know, that that's going to happen. Um, you could argue that, well, climate change has made that worse. And so statistically, you've, you've raised my risk and the public should pay for that portion of the raised risk. I can see some argument there. Okay. 
if you go to Colorado and go up in the mountains in these forested areas, it's a little bit different because the forest fires have always been a part of that, right? It's it, like the hurricane in X number of years, you're going to have a forest fire around you. That That is what happens in forests. They occasionally burn. The problem is, is that we, for a long period of time, thought we could end that cycle, right? So when a forest fire up, we went out and suppressed it. And then another forest fire popped up and we suppressed that and we suppressed that. And now all of a sudden, all this litter has built up on the forest floor where it's just highly combustible. And so the forest fires that we're getting are not just, you know, have a frequency that is greater, but they have an intensity that is far greater. Um, I, I think if we're going to be very generous, someone who was around in a place in the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1970s could say, I built here when it was much safer. Now public policy has made this far more dangerous. Ergo, help me out with my insurance. But someone who's bought in in the last 10 years, like, I, I, like what is the case to be made? Like, I, I, don't, I don't understand what that case would be. It is not like there isn't an awareness I mean, you, you could say, well, the realtor tricked me into buying this house or, you know, like, I, I don't, what does that argument look like? I wanted to live in a big house. You, you and everybody else, buddy. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean. You know, if you go back to the 50s or 60s, I mean, I'm, I'm older than you, but I was not around then, but I, I have been up remote parts of the mountains. Um, a lot of remote mountain living, even 40, 50 years ago, was a cabin on a dirt trail with a latrine, you know, like with like outrunning water. I mean, th these were very rustic places. And I'm sorry, but if a rustic place burns down, you just go out and build another rustic place. It's not that difficult to insure. If you're going to build a $4 million mansion, you know, you, you're going to have to spend a lot of money to insure that thing in a highly dangerous flammable area. And I, I'm not going to lose any tears over that. Well, that's why, you know, like I said, there's a total mismatch between the level of volatility inherent in these different environments um, and the private investment that's going into the real estate. Because in a rational world, areas that have these high threats of natural disaster, whether it's forest fires or floods or hurricanes, that would translate to a low level of investment in terms of housing or really anything else. So you would build things with the expectation that this thing is temporary because of the threat of natural disasters and it's not going to be here for forever. Well, I mean, um, in a real you know, world, a mortgage company is not going to write a mortgage for a house in a, yeah. in a hurricane zone, in a, in a flood zone, in a, you know, forest fire primed zone, right? Like who's writing mortgages for this? And the reality is, is like people write it and then they sell it on the market and nobody tracks it. Nobody cares, right? It gets bundled up. Well, and they're subsidized, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, it's like, exactly. we're, we're talking just about insurance companies, but that's a really good point that we're selling, we're selling mortgages for these properties as well. I mean, it's, it's totally distorted and skewed. And if things were, you know, directly translated to the level of risk associated with the real estate, then we wouldn't be building these things at all. 
Um, it's just a really distorted kind of situation that would enable us to build such valuable real estate in risky areas Let, let's, because it's beautiful and people will pay, beautiful. you know, Huge people print. will pay a subsidized version of it. Right. And tourists want to, they want to see, they want to stay in a mansion on a hillside or cliffside or uh, right on the beach, all of these really volatile areas. Um, it, it just doesn't, it's, it's a great way of extracting value out right now. And then long-term, uh, you know, it'll get hit by a hurricane or burn in a fire and it'll be, you know, the insurance company's problems yeah. then. Well, let's, let's take 10,000 people and put them in a health insurance pool and health insurance. We are whacked in this country too. Like we, we, we treat health insurance like it is a health uh, subsidy plan. Like how much subsidy do I get every year? Yeah, it's horrible. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But let's, let's think about it as like insurance and let's look at like really serious things that happen. So someone is going to get a leukemia or advanced cancer or something that, you know, through no fault of their own, one out of 10,000. So we have a pool of 10,000 and one person is going to get really sick and have hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of medical care. The idea of insurance is that you hope your not that one person. But if you are that one person, the other 9,999 are essentially going to subsidize you and pitch in and a few. And that's that's the trade-off. There's like a moral trade-off there. And I think we all, at a base sense, get that. And there's a certain security and humanity that is provided to people by participating in a, in a pool like that, right? So now let's put those 10,000 people in homes and insure their homes instead of their persons, their bodies, right? Um, if 9,000 of those people or 9,500 of those people live in a neighborhood in Boulder that is in zero danger of going up in a forest fire and 500 of the people live way, way up on the mountain and then that's a different like moral, that's a different moral matrix that you're applying there. And the idea that we should go to the 9,500 people living in a neighborhood in Boulder and say, not only should you pay to build a highway for these people to get have them get it down very easy, not only should you subsidize their sewer water, not only should you uh, have like a degradation of the overall environment here and and you know congestion and like all these other th negative side effects of that development pattern, but now you should also on top of that subsidize their insurance. Like, I don't even get why this is a conversation. Well, I'd love to actually see the math on a scenario like that to see what the, you know, if, if all the houses that are up on the mountain needed to be uh, covered, how much would that actually cost compared to, you know, the 9,000 houses down below? Because the real estate is so expensive. I mean, it's it may be more valuable of real estate and the cost may be even higher than, you know, the cost of a whole neighborhood in another area oh, yeah. that's not going to burn up in flames. Well, this is, this is one of the things that I've seen in Florida that makes a lot of sense to me is that if the federal government gets involved in insuring these homes, and I think this applies here in this instance too, um, we will provide insurance for your home. But if your home suffers this catastrophic loss, if, it, if, it's, if it is in a sense totaled, right, and has to be rebuilt, we're just going to pay you for the property. And like, it's, it's, it's done. Like you're not rebuilding it there. I mean, that, that seems like 
a reasonable like uh, if a private approach. insurance company wants to make you whole and rebuild it there and then keep insuring you and do that over and over again if the if the private market can work that out and there's a cost to do that and whatever like okay i'm i'm not i don't want to i don't want to intervene in that market but if you're turning to the public and you're saying the insurer of last resort cuz these places are really dangerous to live in we want you to be the backstop okay fine we'll do that yeah, um, you got to go somewhere else. Here's your deductible. <laughs> and then if your place, you know, if you got a claim that's over this deductible, we're totaling out your place. We will pay for a 20% down payment on a new place or we'll give you X amount of cash. And then we're going to own this property and it will not be rebuilt. We will not be putting more people up here that we have to insure. And, and my guess is that a, there's some people who would take that risk, but a lot of the people who are asking for the subsidized insurance today would say, no way am I going to make that deal. I will pay higher insurance premiums, which I'm fine with that too. I mean, it seems like the reality is that public insurance seems to be politically popular. And in Colorado, as this becomes more and more of an issue, it, it may be the direction that they go. And so if they go that direction, it just seems like there needs to be some very strict uses of that. And if public insurance is going to be put to use in certain circumstances, you can't rebuild in that location. Like there needs to be areas where like you just, there's a, I guess, moratorium on building and it doesn't make sense to continue investing uh, in real estate in these areas where things are going to go up in flames and the public has to subsidize that. I'll look forward to watching this because it's like, I, I, I feel like Colorado is probably going to go down this path because they're not going to want to lose Vale and Breckenridge and all of these towns uh, that people, you know, it's like their tourism industry is basically anchored in these various mountain towns throughout the state. That's so, that's so interesting to think of. When I went to Hawaii earlier this year, I did a little bit of research before I went um, and then got really interested in this question of tourism as like the base of the economy. You know, every economy has uh, money that comes in, money that goes out, and money that passes around, right? So you can look at like yeah. basically like three parts of your economy. Who, what brings capital to you? Um, what do you send money, capital out to, to receive? And then how much of your capital moves around within the place? Um, tourism, I realize, is a big importer of capital for Hawaii, but... Before I went, I was thinking tourism is 40%, 50% of the economy of Hawaii. It's 18%. Let's be clear. I'm not suggesting that that money coming in does not get passed around a bunch of times. It's important to have that capital coming in. But it was remarkable to me, just astounding to me, how many people, Hawaiians, unprompted said their life was better during the pandemic because they didn't have COVID in Hawaii and they didn't have tourists in Hawaii. Yeah, and it was, I bet it was. It was I like, mean, well, did you, did your restaurant go out of business? Oh no, we just served locals. Did you do? No, 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 no. It was just a lot of local people. It was really great. Um, it's funny because I think we, we have these built-in assumptions that, you know, without veil, Colorado goes down, like their economy just suffers. And <laughs> I, I, no, I get yeah. that argument, right? But like, if Vail was at 
you know, 50% of, if Breckenridge was at 50% of what it was today, would that, would anybody really feel it? I, I don't, I, I don't think that's, there's somebody probably screaming at the speaker right now going, you're an idiot, but I, I, yeah, I think that- but I mean, probably to me too, I, I, I'd be curious what the numbers are in Colorado and how reliant they are on tourism. I mean, and we've, we've talked about this a lot and it's, you know, relying, over-relying on tourism is not a great bet anyway, but yeah, they have all of these mountain towns. I mean, I, I will say I have a lot of, you know, Colorado is the next city down the, down I-70 from Kansas City, about nine hours. I have a lot of friends who moved oh, out to Denver did that drive 10 years once. ago. No, you remember. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> it's a brutal drive through Kansas. Even getting into the mountains compared to 10 years ago is a huge drag. I mean, if, even trying to get out to these mountain towns because so many people um, are not only in Denver, but are, you know, trying to get out to the mountains all at once. And it's a huge problem. And it's, you know, I, I actually kind of wonder if people who live in Colorado don't feel the same way that it was <laughs> maybe better before people started flocking there for vacations and trying to all move into that region all at once. Well, I asked, um, I asked So yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know, why are we talking about this? Like, why is this an issue? And I think I have an answer for that. It's because rich people are making it an issue. Why do we sense in Hawaii that tourism is such a huge part of their economy? Because there's a huge industry that continues to market that very notion over and over and over. Why does Colorado think that Vail is so critical to their economy? Because Vail has like a huge marketing budget that markets that over and over and over. Why do we not laugh in the face of the wealthy person who built the $5 million home up in the mountains in a place that's going to burn down when they come to the the public with their hands open saying, subsidize my insurance. Well, because those people have different connections than you and I do. I think if we recognize that as a public, we can recognize a lot of things about how, quite frankly, top-down government tends to work, which is very different than the way we would do things from a, a more bottom-up standpoint. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, uh, I'll look forward to seeing how I guess in the next 10, 20 years, insurance companies are going to treat all of these different places. Like like we've been saying, this is not even just a Colorado issue. Colorado is now having to face these sorts of challenges, but there's a lot of areas that are really volatile. I mean, I, we've talked about this in Arizona and Florida and California. There, there's a lot of issues out there and it's... Um, going to be tough to insure a lot of properties. So what are we going to we'll do see what happens. when the Colorado River dries up? What are we going to do when the next big uh, earthquake happens? What are we going to do? I mean, there's this like long list of things. Yeah. There are things that are uh, very knowable long in advance, but wh what do you do? Um, well, obviously everybody's going to move to Brainerd. That's what and I, so your real estate hey, uh, career is really going to yeah, take off we'll, at that time. We'll finally have made it. <laughs> Because, you know, we get blizzards here, but blizzards are fun. You just build a big fire in your fireplace and uh, chill out. Read a book. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure it's really, really fun. 
Uh, all right. Okay. Thanks, Ag. Um, okay. Well, we will uh, leave it there. But before we finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we have been watching, reading, listening to, anything that's been taking up our time and attention. Uh, Chuck, you've been making a lot of mm, cookies, yeah. getting really festive lately, I've been noticing. Um <laughs> What's been up Dude, with you? Because people really, um, I have so many people who say, oh, I look forward to your cookie um, pictures every year. I do. I bake. I, I do. Yeah. Thank you. That's very kind. I, I, because of that, I enjoy sharing them. I think they bring people some joy. It certainly brings me joy to do it. It's, um, someone told me that baking is a craft and I hadn't really thought of it that way. Um, but I think that that's very true. It's like an outlet for a little bit of creativity. And also it's just a mindfulness thing. I enjoy listening to a good book or listening to nice music. I, I kind of reflect on my grandmothers and the baking that they made. Um, I try to involve my kids. So it's, it is fun. Um, and I will do that up for the next, you know, the next, the, the next month really. Um, so yeah, that's, that's been a lot of fun. I have 26 different varieties of uh, cookie bar confection that I make over the course of three weeks, four weeks. And yeah, it's very intense. I'm usually up till one in the morning every night because I'll get started in the evening after dinner and I'll, I'll go into the, into the late early morning hours and then do it again the next night. And it's, it's just fun. It's what I do. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I I think I'm planning to do that next weekend, which I'm really excited about. I'm making a little list of things that we'll make and have my sister over and put on some fun holiday music. I actually decorated my house last weekend um, and I just blasted holiday tunes and my dog was really not happy about it. I don't know. I'll send you that picture. I took a picture of her on the couch looking like really, really disappointed in the music. So yeah, she must not not be happy with the season. See, Gryffindor loves um, the Christmas tree. He lays right right oh, underneath yeah. it. He's like, I love this. Um, yeah. Do you do a real tree? Oh yeah, we we actually wind up getting two trees just because of the way our house is configured. Um, we get a, a large living room and a smaller one in like the entryway, and yeah, it's it smells beautiful when you come in the door. And yeah. How about you? I'd love to get a real tree, no, but I'm kind of artificial. allergic to them. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. We have a huge artificial tree that we got from my father-in-law and it goes on the first floor because that's the only place that the ceilings are big enough for that tree to go. Um, but yeah, because the way our house is configured, um, we have these big back west facing windows on the second floor. Um, which kind of on that side is really the third floor because we're on a hill and there's an alley on that side. So it's like way, way up. And so you can see like these windows from all over the neighborhood. And so I really want to get a tree that I can put there, but just one that's not quite as, as tall because it doesn't, the other one doesn't fit. So I've actually been spending a lot of time on Facebook marketplace and been finding some pretty good deals um, I'm actually meeting a lady tomorrow to get some ornaments from her. She has, um, yeah, she's just this retired lady who's been kind of hustling me on Facebook Marketplace, sending me all kinds of stuff that she's made. And I'm kind of a sucker for 
ornaments and wreaths and so, so you're gonna meet you in know, some alley and I, do the deal, do the transaction. I'm gonna meet at a Hobby Lobby. <laughs> Actually, I'm meeting in a parking lot of a Hobby Lobby and and picking up uh, some Christmas right. decorations. So yeah, I'm pretty pretty excited tell about me, it. I mean, what you bake? What is the thing that you like to bake the most? Hmm. So my mom has this really good recipe for like they're like Heath Bar. Uh, I, they're not bars really, but it's like laid out on this paper and then you break it into a bunch of pieces. Sure. Um, so that's really good. My husband really likes these like peanut butter balls that his mom used to make. Uh, so we'll make those like chocolate balls? chip cookies. I don't know what they're called, but it's like peanut butter and marshmallow and like, uh, like Cheerios, I think, and oh, some other not, stuff. Not a bucket ball. <laughs> there's a, yeah, there's it's, it's kind of weird. I've learned more about them because I have we have bastardized the Buckeye ball here in Minnesota because we are not the Buckeye state. Um, oh yeah, a certain like peanut butter, sugar, chocolate thing that that you make that is supposed to look like the nut from like a Buckeye tree, and of course, I okay. not have not being grounded in that. I just make it taste good. And it doesn't look authentic. And I called them Buckeye balls and someone got really mad at me from Ohio. Like, that's not a Buckeye ball. Well, my favorite is um, chocolate-covered pretzels. Dark oh, chocolate okay. on pretzels. Yep. And that's my favorite one to make. Nope. I just I could sit there for hours just dipping pretzels and laying them out. I don't know sugar, why. A little but... bit of salt. It's a combination. Yeah, I think it's the perfect mix. It's my favorite favorite one so well next week the whole team will be um in florida like we said and we are having part of our staff retreat is at epcot center where we are having our discussion day so we stand in line and we talk about things <laughs> and then we go on rides and then we repeat over and over and over but it's also their festival of like cookies and whatever whatever so it's like awesome sweets from around the world yeah so i promised everybody we would try in every land, in every, you know, world showcase area, we would try all the different. Um, and it was a couple of years ago I was there and had the most unique tasting, like best cookie I have ever had. And I found, I went and found the recipe and I made them and it actually turned out really, really well. So I'm going to look for it again and see if I can find it because now I had theirs and it was like this magical thing, but I only had a couple bites and then I made my own and they were really, really good. And now I'm going to go back and like verify is my hope. Well, hey, if you have recommendations, send them my way. I will. I'll be making a list and um, probably doing that next weekend. So yeah, if you have recommendations, I'm happy to happy to hear them. Maybe we should have a Strong Towns baking book or something. That's not a bad idea. No, it's not a bad I idea. think that's a great idea. It'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks, Abby. Um, well, thanks, Chuck. Good to see you and enjoy your trip next week. And we'll end it there. So thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. See ya. Let me show you